Welcome to Ruling Sports, a podcast giving you a playbook for life. I'm your host, Alicia Jessup. Join me as I interview athletes, leaders, and innovators to uncover their game plans for success and give you insights to rule your life. Let the play clock begin. Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg once said, the biggest risk is not taking any risk. This week's guest is someone who, through great risks, has achieved amazing success. Steve Astafin is the founder and CEO of The Family and co-founder of Unlisted Brand Lab. Growing up in one of Boston's toughest neighborhoods, Steve arrived in Vail in the late 1980s, just as snowboarding was picking up popularity. A natural-born entrepreneur, Steve saw opportunity in snowboarding. He approached his then-employer, Vail Resorts, and said, hey, why don't we open a snowboard shop? Needless to say, they weren't excited about the opportunity. Steve will actually tell us what their reaction was. And in telling us this, he gives such an important lesson to entrepreneurs, namely that you cannot take others' no's as the ultimate determinant of whether your idea is something that will succeed. With the feedback that Vail Associates, now Vail Resorts, gave Steve and the company's prowess, most people would have put their idea to bed, but not Steve. Steve tells us why he kept going with the idea and gives listeners strategies to keep believing in their entrepreneurial pursuits even when bigger fish disagree or will not invest. After opening and scaling the first snowboard shop in Beaver Creek, Colorado, Steve moved to San Diego to help grow the Lamar Snowboards brand. There, he continued building meaningful relationships with snowboard athletes. Through the trust he built with them, Along with his work ethic, Steve would come to build the family as one of the most notable sport agencies in America. With Steve's nearly 40 years of entrepreneurial experience, this is a great listen for founders and those interested in starting companies. In discussing his vast entrepreneurial journey, Steve explains why risk is everything as an entrepreneur and how to manage it, gives tips for scaling a company with considerations and a mindset to adopt as it relates to taking on investors or even selling your company, and how he sees the agency landscape changing and why he's navigating the new space the way he is. Steve also offers great advice for athletes and brands as it relates to partnerships and brand building. Here, he gives tips for building impactful athlete-owned companies, explains where the real opportunity in college athlete NIL endorsement lies, and let me tell you, it's something you probably haven't thought of, and finally, gives college athletes a guidebook for deciding what brands they should work with. This is an incredible listen, and Steve so generously tells us about his fascinating journey to where he is today. I know you're going to be entertained and inspired. So now, join me in welcoming Steve Astafin to the Ruling Sports Podcast. Steve, welcome to the Ruling Sports Podcast. I'm so excited to talk to you about your journey and how you are once again reimagining the agency space. Thank you for having me. What goal, quote, or mindset has guided your life? 
I think the goal was always to mostly and guide my life was to never, unfortunately didn't have the wherewithal or the, the opportunity to attend a good college or finish high school and stuff. So my goal was always to strive to be better than honestly, my surroundings were where I grew up. And then, you know, kind of something I just go by, which a friend of mine who passed away recently was famous for saying it is just simply don't be an asshole. What was your friend's name? Ken Block. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Boston, Massachusetts, and spent most of my time there until I moved to Vail in 1987, late 87, almost 88. What were you into as a kid? Um, I grew up mostly traditional sports. So I played football, um, basketball until I learned how to ski, and then um, still did that for a while. And then I was a big baseball player. I pitched. So football, I was a quarterback and receiver and played different positions. But baseball, I was strictly a pitcher and uh, grew up playing traditional sports and then Unfortunately, what I did when I was a kid is getting a lot of trouble. So it's good news. I don't do that anymore and haven't for a long time. So, but yeah, I had had a very, uh, a fun childhood bouncing around everywhere. So it was good. Were you a Sox fan? I am a Boston Red Sox fan. Yeah. I don't like the Patriots. We'll go on record, but I'm a big Bruins. I support the Bruins. I'm more of a Warriors fan because of, uh, my time with clay and stuff, but, um, I do like the Celtics a lot and definitely the Red Sox. So probably just the the Patriots. I'm even a Boston college fan still, but um, I do have other schools I prefer, but I am a fan. I'm born and raised in Denver and I'm a diehard Broncos fan. So we can continue this episode knowing that you're not a Patriots fan. That's wonderful. One of my closest friends is the coach, a very good friend of mine, Sean Payton. And then one of our presidents in my company's brother is the assistant GM at the Broncos. So you have two, and now we have a player. We just had a rookie sign there. So look Let's at that. go. Starting Let's ride. Right away. Ride. There you go. Let's ride. It's it's time. So I don't know. We mix it up over there. You're going to have a lot of fun. Let, let's hope. It's It's been an um, interesting few years. But listen, we've won championships and we can't win every year. You've got to give other people a chance. How did you get into snowboarding? Um, I got, when I moved to Vail, I got, I got hurt skiing. And the first time I got injured, I went to the Stedman clinic. Dr. Stedman was a pretty famous, still is the Stedman clinic is, I mean, the funny thing is the field that I've gotten into, I've sent at least two dozen athletes there for knee surgeries and shoulders and wrists. And, and he actually, that clinic saved one of my athletes who's back that, you know, the, the hospital he was in, in California, they almost cut his arm off and, and I there on a jet and they, they basically saved his arm. Um, so I, I, I got to know Dr. Stedman at the time and, um, some other people snowboarding was starting to come around more, but I was actually a hater. And he's like, look, I don't, the way I hurt my knees and stuff, there just wasn't, you know, the story has been told a million times, but I just didn't really have the ability. And I kind of fought it a bit and then tried it that spring and fell absolutely in love with it. It just from a powder perspective, control, comfort, no pain, still at 51. Now I, I, I love snowboarding. My son's a big skier. He hasn't transferred formed over yet, but I absolutely love snowboarding. So yeah, that's how I kind of got into the business. Okay. So you're growing up in Boston in the East coast, you pack up everything, you move to Vail on a Greyhound bus. Why, why were you going to Vail? What were you doing? I, I grew up in a pretty troubled, I, I wasn't a good kid and, and I had gotten in some trouble several times. And um, my grandmother on my mother's side was kind of a blessing and just said, look, I think you need to get out of here. And I had met a couple people just randomly through those trouble. One Rastafarian guy that moved to Vail through bartending. Uh, he was a bartender. And it just kind of was like, I had no other choice. Like I didn't, I've never left Boston, New England. I've been to Maine, New Hampshire, but I, I had never left New England. And he said, look, you should try Vail. It's a great ski town. And I had nothing to do. And I figured it would 
kind of leave my past behind me. Um, and my grandmother bought me a one-way ticket to, to, to Vail. And I lived with him a short time and six other people in like a two bedroom, maybe eight of us, actually. It was a, it was a lot. So it was quite the experience moving there. But again, I think it gave me just more of that drive and grit to be successful and an entrepreneur and work hard. I definitely worked hard when I was in the Valley. And, and again, fast forward to 1989, I opened the very first snowboard shop in uh, Beaver Creek, Colorado in Vail. How did that come about? How did you get the opportunity to start a snowboard shop? I met another gentleman, diehard skier, Jimmy Dalton, in from Squaw Valley. We became friends and both fell in love with snowboarding. We were working for Vail Associates in a ski shop called Fresh Tracks. And interesting enough, I think, again, you're born an entrepreneur. I don't think you're taught that. And I've been really lucky to have a lot of vision early on, whether it was good vision or bad. And Jimmy was like that as well. And, and we were working in the ski shop and we kept seeing snowboarders come in and kind of back then it's different now. It's like, mainstream, right? But back then it was a very different individual, um, very independent, kind of looked like a skateboarder or punk rock or an emo um, would come in and it just skiing was very different. And so we went to Vail and we actually tried to get Vail Associates to open a snowboard shop in Beaver Creek. And they said, you know, one of those educated uh, turnarounds that that's the stupidest idea long uh, I've ever heard type thing. And so we just set out to do it ourselves one summer and we got a lot of no's at traditional banks. We needed money. We needed a loan. And uh, the last bank we went to is just a, an old guy. The president came back, start the bank, first bank of Vail and Dan, and he gave us a chance. I think similar, he grew up in Minturn and wanted to give somebody a chance. He shouldn't have given us a chance, but it paid off for him. So um, right place, right time. He said, here's the money. You got to find a space now. Once again, got lucky with that. I was uh, bar back and kind of doing different teaching, snowboarding, and just kind of working in retail. Met a gentleman named Craig Forbes, his brother owned the Coyote up there. And uh, he said, look, I think I can help you find a, a real estate office or, or there's an old real estate office next door. Um, you should try and do it there. It's in the Beaver Creek Lodge. And uh, we opened the first snowboard shot there. So everything was very much aligned. And and then things just went like this. And then funny enough, when you look at like entrepreneurship versus corporate mothership, when you open something in the Vale Valley and the Vale Associates, you pay them a tax based on retail and they could see what kind of revenue we were doing. And sure enough, what do you think they opened a couple of years later is a snowboard shop, right? Where we told them to do it in the ski basket. So, you know, fast forward, it was an interesting thing and hung out there for a while. And uh, I had a great run, learned a lot about business. A lot of like, you know, taking the streets and where I grew up into business was not always the best thing to do. So I learned how to become, you know, I learned a lot of lessons there to move on and take off. And um, retail was getting tough. Obviously, we had a lot more competition then. And, and I did strive to do more. And our shop and myself individually, my, my side of the job was kind of like the front man, the PR marketing. And I met a lot of the pro athletes. And um, I was approached by a brand to move to San Diego and become kind of the team manager and marketing director and, and run marketing and cool, cool guy stuff for the brand. So once again, packed up and moved to San Diego, California, and, and I've been here ever since. Wow. This is a theme that I'm seeing a lot in your life is you have this idea. It's frankly an early idea for the industry. You take the idea, you go to the bigger player, you present them an opportunity to get involved. They tell you no, but you don't refuse to accept that as an answer. Instead, you strike out on your own. Where do you get the courage in the face of some entity like Vail Resort saying, no, that's not going to work to nonetheless pursue the idea? 
I mean, I think that's where the street smarts comes in when you're, you know, and I, I, I just always been very blessed to be around great people, not always traditionally, you know, now I've got Harvard Law gentleman that works for me. And I, I think things have changed because they've all evolved. And even like a polished private equity person is willing to take a little bit more risk now. But like when I was doing the shop and then also the original family, you know, traditionally there was just a lot, like in my opinion, too many uh, if I'm honest, bean counters and people evaluating things versus looking at, is there a white space? Is there a true entrepreneurial you know, space to do something different? And if you look at a lot of the best entrepreneurs in the world, which I'm not saying I'm anywhere near some of these, they also had to take a chance. And they also probably got told no a lot, Apple, Tesla. I mean, you can, the list goes on and on. So I think for me was just, you know, the way I learned was surrounding myself by smarter people and funny enough, like movies and TV and just seeing people doing it. And I always knew that without, with a lack of education, I had a chip on my shoulder back in the day and I had some insecurities, which those can be dangerous, but also it can also like, you weren't going to outwork me still to this day. It's just a habit. Like it's going to be hard to outwork me. And so just hard work and that vision and entrepreneurial spirit. And so I just, I don't know. I th- like I said, I think you're born with it. Um, I love just always keeping my mind onto something else, but without losing focus on the goal, which is to build something that can make a difference in the world or service and take care of other people or provide something that's different. So I think a lot of times big um, corporations get too much tunnel vision. And maybe that's why I saw an opportunity that's not important to them. At the Mm -hmm. time, it wasn't important to them. Now they're all in action sports. What was the name of the shop? The Other Side. The Other Side. And how old were you? 20. Yes, I was 20. 20. Yeah, I'm 51. Oh God. I can't believe I'm aging myself like this right now. Something like that. Yeah, I was young. I don't even think I could legally drink. Do you remember how much the loan was for? Hundred thousand dollars. And then his father, I think, chipped in a little bit because Jimmy's dad was willing to help us out a little bit. But yeah, it was about a hundred thousand, hundred and twenty thousand at the time. That was a lot of money back then. A lot of money. But well. You know, and again, it was a lot of money, but also it was like, we would just, again, I mean, we would buy snowboards for, let's say 150 bucks, just use round numbers for boots, boards, and bindings back there. They're now, now it's like a thousand bucks to get everything, but it was fairly inexpensive to buy rental boards. And we would rent them for 75 bucks a day. Hmm. And we were the only one up there. So you'd rent 200 boards a day. So you could do the math. We paid the loan off pretty quick and, and things went pretty well. Who were some of the notable people that came through the shop? Nowadays, most of them are retired, but they're legends in the sport still. But I mean, everyone in, in snowboarding back in the day came in Vail, Beaver Creek. It was just, that was the mega center of trees and just different kind of things that were popular. So um, everyone from Jeff Brushy to Ken Block, the gentleman that passed away that started DC Shoes and Drawers and went on to sell that for hundreds of millions of dollars. He used to come in the shop quite a bit. Um, all the executives and the heads of Oakley, because we were the shop, um, all the brands, every athlete. I mean, Cersei Wallace, the first female think signature model and um, ended up being an agent. Cersei's an agent now today. But every pro kind of came to our shop when they were in town. And we actually at one point built our own team and had a van that we drove around and promote our shop and that sort of stuff. So once again, it wasn't just a retail. It was a, it was a, it was part of a family. It was a brand. Hmm. Um, and that's how we've always, t- I've always in my team around me have taken things of it's more than a company. We're trying to create a family. I love that. So these fascinating people are coming through the shop. You're 20 years old. I can only imagine having the time of your life in Vail. Now you keep referring to the fact this is the one shop. This is the one shop, but I feel like 
they probably felt some connection to you or you were building friendships. What advice do you have for how to build lasting relationships in the world of business and sports? What I was always great at is building the relationships and making them. I definitely didn't keep them as strong as I do now. I mean, we've all made mistakes in our life, but I would say to a young entrepreneur or somebody is that yeah, relationships are everything. I mean, I am so blessed to still have a relationship with Casey Wasserman and my old partners and, and those sort of things. And, um, or more importantly, even the people that maybe I hired or, or brought up through the ranks to still have their support in what I'm doing and what I continue to build and do building a good culture. And I think being, like you said, being good to people. And I learned that, you know, servicing and, and taking care of people like their family is really how I became finally successful and kept those relationships for a lot of years and still really enjoy those relationships and, and continue to get referrals from those relationships. And when I left kind of like the hottest, the hottest uh, thing in town. And, and when we parted ways and, you know, size, money, scale, I, I was nervous, but I think if I had been there for 20 years and done things differently, I, I'm not so sure I would have had the same support, but I don't know. I think the industry in, in whether it be golf, whether it be any industry has just really, really supported me. And I'm, I'm grateful. I think they, I think it means a lot when you admit your mistakes and you, that's another important thing when you have insecurities in business or you have a chip on your shoulder. And a lot of that comes from age. And as you mature, you learn those things. But I definitely learned the hard way. And, and I've cleaned that and moved into a thing where I'd say, you know, the last 10 years of my life have been really, really rewarding because of that. So I'm very grateful for the people around me and the people that helped me. Do you want exclusive insights from your favorite athletes, sport industry leaders, and innovators delivered straight to your inbox? Subscribe today to the Ruling Sports Newsletter. The Ruling Sports Newsletter cuts the mystery out of success by bringing you leadership tools, entrepreneurial strategies, business insights, and wellness tips straight from some of the world's most positively impactful people. So go to rulingsports.com today and subscribe for free. How important is the willingness to take risk to someone's success as an entrepreneur? I mean, it's all, it's everything. I mean, you gotta, to me, if you're not, I mean, I think in the beginning, the first five years of a business, you better be all in, take huge risk. You could take calculated risks. Um, one of my clients always said is I might look crazy, but I, I'm calculated. I still today, like what we're growing here with the family and the team, I mean, we're all in. I mean, it's, we're going full bore to a scalable business. And again, I don't, I have no aspirations of being IMGCA, Wasserman, my old business, you know, my old company or anything like that. I've got a real white space I think I can discover for all sports and music. And I want to focus on that. Still a big business, still an important business. Like I said, I have 25 years of mistakes that I'm learning more from the 25 years of like the articles and the trophies and the awards and all the great things we've done. I really want to learn from those mistakes and, and pass those on to, to young entrepreneurs. I, I love your story. And especially growing up in Denver, I probably wouldn't be here talking to you as awesome as this is. If my grandfather was more willing to take risk, he was a builder in Denver and had the opportunity to invest in Vail Mountain. And he said, this will never take off. Nobody's ever going to come here. <laughs> Whoa, how my life would look markedly different if my grandfather developed Bell Mountain. So you, you've got to take risks. You have to take risks. For sure. Absolutely. 100%. And work hard. You know, the risks, risks are more risky when you're not willing to 
give it all yourself. And the team around you will give more if they see you giving more. And that's important. I always tell people, I don't need you to work as hard as me. Just respect what I do and do it to the best of your ability. And we're going to all do great together. So you're running the snowboard shop. You get tapped to go run a company in San Diego. Can you tell us a little bit more about that opportunity? Yeah. I mean, I think, again, we just built a real good buzz at the other side and and, and Beaver Creek and the pros and that business, you know, snowboarding was built on characters and teams and the industry and content creation and athletes. And, and he figured I could put it together and it, and look, I did a pretty good job. And I also learned really quickly that I'm not great back then. I wasn't great at working for anybody. So um, I lasted a while and we had a great run. I mean, we won every X games medal I put together. They gave me the creative freedom to do really great stuff. I did put together one of the first snowboard video games that sits in our office at 1080 snowboarding. And I was very creative on how to use the athletes. And we definitely dominated the, the, the space with not the budgets of Burton. We were a startup, you know, core snowboarding company. So the year that he went to sell the company was kind of when I saw the writing on the wall that it was probably time for me to leave, but I had a really good run, did some time in the eyewear after that and sunglass brands and goggles and that sort of stuff. And then in 1998, um, decided that, uh, by total craziness, I was going to become an agent for snowboarders. <laughs> and so, fast- so what was that craziness? Like what, what made you decide to become an agent? Um, you know, very similar. I, I had a snowboarder who um, was going through Reebok was coming into the sport. Um, a lot of brands in the nineties and early two thousands, even eighties would come into action sports because it was the cool new thing, snowboarding, skateboarding, whatever it may be, X games industry. And often didn't understand how to market to that generation or those kids authentically. And that word's used way too much now. But back then, the word was basically just don't be bad at what you do. Be creative and be cool. And they they struggled with that. So um, Reebok had this bright idea, whoever, I don't know who told them this, but maybe Tom Shine, who's a great boss now. And funny enough, the, the craziest thing, the, the company that just bought Reebok, which is Authentic Brands Group, Jamie Salters, he was the one that bought the snowboard company and why I quit originally. We're great Whoa. friends today and him and his sons. And yeah, it's talk about full circle. Tom Shine totally. again was at Reebok and Box had called up all the athletes and fired them. And because it wasn't working, calling it Box, they should have called it Reebok. They should have been patient like Nike. Yeah, you're going to get made fun of coming into a core industry like that. But eventually look at, look at Nike. I mean, they are actually. And I'm telling you in the beginning, funny enough, I used to do ads making fun of Nike. So what Reebok called up athletes and said, you're fired. Kevin Jones was the pro snowboarder, came in my office. He was riding for me at the time at Lamar. And also just, I stayed friends with him after that. And, and while I was consulting for eyewear brands and everything, and he was basically the one that just said like, Hey dude, I need help. Like, and I'm like, he's like, you should be my agent. I don't know. It's so long ago. It was something we had a funny conversation. I'm like, what the heck? So Long story short, I knew I had a knack for it because I think I, yeah, I was still at Lamar and I basically called up and negotiated a settlement and nobody else got a settlement. And he's just like, you should do this. And I waited a while and I was nervous. I don't come from any, I didn't have any money. And next thing you know, I wasn't stimulated in the eyewear and the, in the, in the brand side anymore. And I decided to launch the family, came up with a name and started it out of my garage representing snowboarders. Next thing you know, I had four snowboarders. Next thing I know, I had eight. And then I met a motocross guy. And then I met a BMXer and a skateboarder. And the next thing you know, the family was off. And I think, I mean, fast forward, even in a couple of years when X Games was really launched summer and winter, I think summer at one point I had 21. And I don't even think there's more, there's not even 28 medals at that time. I think my guys basically swept every podium. So I really had a monopoly again. I tried to go to IMG early on and I said, and same thing, like 
snowboarders, they don't make any money. So I really, again, had the right place. They forgave me for lack of education. They accepted me as one of them. I was authentic to them. I was a hard worker. And I just, I got really, really lucky. And the thing is, I always said, is I, when you have an idea like that and you're an entrepreneur, you just got to make sure that when you go, you go hard and you're in the fast lane. Cause then when IMG and Octagon, everybody else figured it out, I was already so far ahead in the fast lane. They weren't catching me. And if they had done it quicker, they would have destroyed me. I had no money. I had no investors, no nothing. But then the industry was going to support me too much. I mean, the athletes were, they weren't going to go to an IMG, just like a Reebok in a bot, you know, they're not going to do that. So I, uh, once again, just caught lightning in a bottle and things were going, you know, kind of took off from there. How much lead time did you have until the IMG CAAs woke up and said, oh, action sports is actually worth investing in? When they tried to come and acquire me, IMG and Octagon, Omnicom, and then I met Casey Wasserman. He was doing something and uh, I partnered with him. So I'd say around 2002, 2001, when they really noticed the money that we were bringing in. Hmm. So you mentioned you ended up partnering with Casey Wasserman as he was starting Wasserman. A year later, you would ultimately sell the family, the agency that you built to Wasserman. How did you choose Casey as a partner? I mean, Casey was bright. I mean, he was smart. He he read me really well, just like I think I read people pretty well. And he came down to Carlsbad with a gentleman um, that introduced us named Jeff Schwartz, who is Excel. I mean, he's done very well as well. But Jeff and him were close and they had a little bit of a partnership back then in, in 2002, 2003. And and long story short, he, he was just, you know, he knew basically if I sold 100% to Omnicom or IMG, which they don't do partnerships, um, he basically said, look, you do this deal. And and I was very blessed at the time. I finally had had a CFO president who's still at Wasserman, by the way, 25 years later. He was my first big hire, Brad Lusky. And he came from that bean counting side. I call him the bean counter, but he's the best. He really helped me make that decision too, going, hey man, don't you see that difference? Is like the way you are right now. And again, back then, especially is like, if you sell hundred percent now on common five years when your contract, you're gone. And Casey gave me an opportunity to, to, to try it first. And he was really him and, and Mike Watts, who's still there. And, and, and again, a personal friend and I, and I, I, I have nothing but the greatest thing to say about them. Casey and Mike were just smart to say, look, why don't you sell us a minority share? You control it, call it the family, do whatever you want. Now, again, that didn't last long. A year later, it was all rolled up in because I made that decision, though. I got to really get to bed and, and make them family to me, really. Mm-hmm. And and he allowed me to be an entrepreneur for 19 years. Mm-hmm. I think that's such a critical decision that entrepreneurs face is you're building this thing. It takes off. Do you want to stay at the helm? Do you want to sell it completely to somebody else, sell a minority stake? And I, I think that's a critical decision of which road you go down. It really is. And I, I think everybody's decision has to be their own or the people they surround themselves with. Like, again, it, it's easy to me to say because I've done it now so many times. I've been on boards. I've I've sold other investment, other brands I've started with athletes or, you know, friends. And so everything's different now. But like, you know, I will say this time I'm not giving up on the insecurity. What Casey was smart to do also still, though, was gave me security. Right. Like I knew I could get into golf and into mainstream sports. I knew I could take what I've done in action sports so hard to do and bring that over to that world and outwork a lot of the agents and traditional marketers in that space, which we did. And I did. Um, and the team I, I built did. So, you know, you, you, you build that over time and experience. Like when I, I was always, I still, I guess that's a lot of what my mentors and friends say is I always think the sky's falling. 
So it's like, I just, I just continue to hustle as hard as I possibly did day one. But what I would say is I'm a lot more secure in my ability now, right? Like what we're doing with the family of God forbid things don't work out. I'm going to be fine. I can go manage some, I, I know my capabilities. I can go grab a few, one athlete, two athletes and a musician work out of my garage and probably make more money than most people make in a lifetime. I mean, to be honest with you, it's a great business when you get to a certain level and you can attract blue chip, amazing clients like I have today. They're here for me and they're here for the company, but like, you know, again, they're here for you. Right. So I think it's a little bit different, but, but I, I would say the thing I like to pass on to young entrepreneurs now is keep taking the risk as long as you can. I feel like I sold too early. Again, I don't regret it. I just, I think I let my insecurity because funny enough, look how fast I grew once I got that. Right. It's just, it was that mindset of like knowing my food, my kids would be fed, knowing I'd be okay. And then all of a sudden it was like, boom, I'm going to just go hustle. So I think I think waiting, if you're truly the entrepreneur that started the company, it's just really waiting it out to make sure that you don't give up. There's something to be said about Zuckerberg and the way he wrote those deals and controlling. It is his brand and his company. I believe we built the family, but at the end of the day, there are still things that I just know better than the others right now, I feel like. that That's great advice. Patience. So in 2019, you left Wasserman. Are you open to talking about why you made that decision? You know, for me, the timing even prior to that, it's it's like what we're what our goal, what I'll say is why I believe the family and unlisted is the future of this business and the way I want to do it is what I do know that I watched in those years and what as things grew was, you know, it's not for me to be in a company with never mind 500, a thousand employees, 2,000 employees, 1,600 clients. It's just, it's not what I'm good at or what I specialize in. That's just not what my team and I are building. So for me, as I was building brands also and being creative and and using my ability and access to athletes to go do other stuff and build more revenue opportunities for the company, it got harder to do the more investors that came in, the bigger the company got. I mean, how many times can Casey and Mike look at another person that was, by the way, smarter than me probably, or maybe had a better degree and, and also an executive of the company and keep letting me do what I do like there goes crazy Steve again. Like it's just, it becomes a, a an issue when you're that big, right? Why is it that Steve can keep getting equity and deals and building these deals, but I can't, or why is it that Steve? So you almost kind of create, when you get that big, you create an animosity within the business and stuff. So that's not why, but it's like, it's just the creativity of what I wanted to do and everything. I was better off. It was perfect timing for so many reasons. Um, and again, we we had no non-compete. I mean, I got the family back. I sold my equity. Casey and Mike took very good care of me. And, and we even shared clients up until, geez, six months ago, probably. For the first, it was almost three years we were sharing a lot of clients because it, it would have cost too much drastic for each side. So even if the athlete came with me, we shared. If they stayed there, we shared. And we just, we had a good relationship. Now it's, look, I talked to him the other day, just kind of sending him a love text and just shooting the shit. But at the end of the day, we're competitors. Let's get something straight. I mean, I've already gotten clients that they were going after and they're going to win some, I'm going to win some. I just think there'll be some point where I just, I don't have the goal of being a CAA and IMG a Wasserman. That's just too big for me. Hey everyone, I hope you're enjoying the show. Please don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review Ruling Sports on iTunes or your favorite podcast streaming service. It goes a long way to growing the show. Thank you for your support. You've mentioned the incubator. Tell us why you're focusing on that and what you're doing. 
I wouldn't say focusing. That is truly, although a sister company we own, you know, we started that. Funny, I recycled, you know, Candy Harris, the CEO, was an original family employee, never worked with athletes really on the agent side. She was the one that helped me make those brands authentic and help them activate. So she actually launched with another gentleman, my consulting division for the Red Original Family. And then in about 2000 or 2001, um, she got the opportunity to go work on that. When you're on that side of an agency, your next thing is go brand. And she had experience before me. So she went off to work for, you know, Billabong for over a decade and, and ran Billabong Women's who even a founder and CMO chief creative officer of Stance Socks, which a lot of people maybe know that brand. And it was good timing. She saw me relaunch the family and she's like, oh my God, to see that name again, let's get together. And I actually had an alternative motive when that, and I said, First meeting, I said, she goes, what are you doing? And I said, well, you know what the family is, but I got an idea. And like some of my last few years at Wasserman, as you know, was incubating and helping startups. And I've got this vision of doing this with athletes, entrepreneurs, and musicians and artists, but doing away with real business plan and real time, you know, not like crazy Steve, where it's like, let's go start this brand. Let's go do this. It's like, I want your experience at a C-level, surround yourself with other C-levels, and maybe we'll say no more often, but what we'll do is we'll we'll go along with the athlete or entrepreneur and work for equity versus retainer or you know day one, tell the person, well, you got to pay us a million dollars to go do this for you. So we're kind of flipping the agency model or consulting or brand building model on its feet and, and trying to be creative around that. That's not a new idea. There's other incubators, but we're focused really on consumer products that have a white space that we can tie in talent, athletes, musicians, et cetera, with them and be founders with them on day one. It's called Unlisted Brand Lab. Our first launch brand was a unisex nail polish line started and founded by Machine Gun Kelly. Also on that brand is another partner was added later on, Jalen Green, who's actually represented by CAA. So that's a great story for us that, you know, it's not the family athletes only, and it's not the family. We want to be a resource to entrepreneurs and athletes and musicians with a great team we built over there. So that's just kind of carrying over at Wasserman. I got pushback sometimes. Like if I was calling James Harden, I was part of a company called Artist Sport that was founded by Brian Lee at The Honest Company and another gentleman, Jacob Lazar, who's now my COO and Kobe Bryant and James Harden, Javi Bay, a bunch of athletes. We founded it. That was the one thing that was the first thing where Wasserman took money. I took equity because they just, you know, we were a different position, but that experience was um, one of many that we did at Wasserman Ethica. We were involved with launching and relaunching that brand and Stance Socks and Hoonigan Media Machine, which actually just sold 18 months ago. So I still, you know, had an equity stake with Wasserman in that that finally sold. So um, I had some experience and that's kind of how our industry, the original industry of action sports was built on is brands, athlete needed brand deals. They built DC shoes, Volcom, because we didn't have big league deals. So mm-hmm. Candy is just, I'm so blessed to have her as a CEO over there. And she's built a team of mostly women. There's I think one guy or two guys in the whole company. Mm-hmm. Women tend to be a little bit more creative on the consumer product side and a lot smarter when it comes to managing that process and not just all craziness. So really blessed to have them over there. And I think it's an outlier for us. It's a good for recruiting. Um, the world's different, right? The action sports was always like that, but now every basketball player, musician, not, not every, but a lot of them really aspire to own brands. And so we want to give them a safe place to do that. I, I love that last part in particular. A lot of them aspire to own brands. Do you think every athlete should own a brand? Or if I'm an athlete listening to this, how should I decide if I should give you a call or move forward into another incubator or founding my own brand? 
Well, I mean, that's part of the process that we help them with, right? Any athlete, any person is capable of doing it. But what I also found over the years of 25 years in the space is that a lot of athletes have gotten bad advice and spent a lot of money that maybe with a little bit more, just like I learned over time, a little bit more structure, a little bit more process, a little bit more operations put in place, we'd find out a little bit quicker and less investment, whether it really is an opportunity. So our first job we call phase one is identifying the white space and if it's a real opportunity. And we just kind of try to help that athlete, musician, entrepreneur make that decision. So I think every athlete has the ability now, having said that, every athlete has the opportunity if they have a great idea. Some athletes can do it just because of who they are. And you know, you've seen that happen. LeBron James, but those Michael Jordan, there's very far and few between um, that can do that. So um, it normally takes more than one. My recommendation is you're building a team. You want the brand to be bigger than the individual, right? We don't want undone nail polish to be just about Machine Gun Kelly. You want it to be bigger than Machine Gun Kelly because obviously still the majority, although we found a white space, is women buying nail polish, mm-hmm. not men, right? So we, we need to grow that brand bigger than Machine Gun Kelly. What are some of your favorite brands? What brands do you love? What brands do I love? What brands do I look up to is probably two different things. Um, I love, uh, I, I mean, still to this day, I respect and love and look up to Nike. I went and saw Air and I, my fiance, it was kind of embarrassing, but in the credit, like before the movie started, I started crying. Mm-hmm. Like no joke, I cried six times in the movie. And it's not even a sad movie. It's more just, you know, that risk and that entrepreneurial spirit and those that go see it. There's more than just a movie there. It's like, there's a lot of, that can be learned there. Um, so really have a ton of respect for Nike. Um, in the fashion place space, I love Louis Vuitton. Vuitton and what they've always done in creative and inclusive and expanded what their brand is. And now with Pharrell and prior to that Virgil, a lot of young startup brands I love that I've been involved with. Again, Ethica Underwear, I've been involved since day one and went through a lot of issues and now is just doing incredible things. Danny Evans and the team over there. Um, Stan Socks, I, you know, I respect everything they've done and I was glad to be a little part of that. There's a hat brand named Melon that day one, um, you know, I was, I was part of, never got equity, actually ended up bringing a friend in the equity, um, JJ. And I love to watch that brand Melon hats. They've really brought the hat space, almost like sneaker heads. Like they've mm-hmm. given you an opportunity to buy a style that's functional and, and really, different than what was in the marketplace. They found their white space, let's say. Those are some of the brands. Love Porsche as a brand, love Range Rover as a brand. You've given already such great advice. I especially like the point about you want the product to be bigger than the athlete or the musician. How do you think NIL is going to shape this space moving forward? I mean, like my honest opinion with NIL is, is it's still the wild, wild west and there has to be structure put in place. I, I believe that every college athlete that produces, you know, uh, they all produce revenue for these schools, they should be, and it should have been always some kind of opportunity through their name, image, likeness. What I think is it just got a little crazy and the rules are blurred and everything else. So I'm having a hard time and I'm hoping somebody comes in and puts a infrastructure of a front office and some rules and some regulations and maybe even a registered type, you know, a little bit more qualifications into this process. But I think what's going to be really unique is long storytelling eventually. I think still the big brands are very nervous to come in and work with a college athlete. I think they're kind of seeing what what comes of this, but you don't see the Amexes in yet and the Fords and the, in a big way, that's, it's a huge opportunity for them. If you look at Rolex and the history of their ad campaign, 
they don't show Ricky Fowler and Tiger Woods and Jack Nicklaus in their prime. They show the his. They show Jack still ten years, fifteen years ago. Tiger. They're not showing Tiger today. There's that like nostalgia. What they're trying to tell the consumer is these people have always been involved with this brand since day one. They aspired to be with Rolex and they became part of Rolex. They don't want to show you today. It looks like that's their theory. Well, I actually think that the NIL space is similar to that. So for me, if I was consulting for a, a car brand or a credit card or a bank, I'd say. It's too early to get the result day one because of the consumer that's following them. But what a great story if you're with them through the process mm. of their first car driving to college. Don't even tell anybody about it right now. Save the story like Rolex. And then all of a sudden you go into the draft and the story is so authentic because you could show the last two years or three years in college of them driving an F-150 and now becoming an NFL and continuing that relationship. Mm. That to me is the storytelling that hasn't been done yet by a brand. That to me is the real opportunity because you can't nowadays you know, a guy turns pro or a girl turns pro, you're getting them that day. They may have no affiliation with the brand until that point. So to me, NIL, the real opportunity is start to get people to have an affiliation and a passion for the brand. Someone once sent to me, I was consulting back when I did this at Wasserman, I was doing the creative for Audemars Piguet, a watch company. Mm -hmm. And they were saying, we were talking about, it's like Jay-Z used to rap about AP. That didn't sell AP that day. What it did is it gave everybody that listened to JC that eventually when they could afford, they aspired to own an AP, right? And, and to me, it's much easier to get a consumer young when they're vulnerable to attach to a brand and keep them for life than just to keep trying to buy one. So what if we took that mentality into athletes or musicians, take more risk and go day one, just like an entrepreneur, Take the risk on that rookie. Take that risk on the band before it costs you $7 million to do something with them. So to me, I would look at if I was consulting for a brand, I have a ton of ideas with this. I'd be it'd be about storytelling and a marathon, not a sprint. I wouldn't even probably be very public about the relationship in college, even though there'd be one. It's about telling that story long-term and when they, when they make it. And if they don't, what's the risk? The investment was so much less. I love that. I, I love the story arc. I love the possibility for ROI. But on the flip side, if the bet doesn't pan out, the risk isn't that great. Let's flip the table a little bit. So that case study just worked us through how a brand could approach NIL. If I'm an athlete listening to this and I don't have the privilege of working with someone like you and I'm trying to decide what brand should I partner with, how should I evaluate these opportunities that are being floated to me? In an ideal world, if you don't financially need to do this, because I don't want to ever, you know, Ken, there's, that's a big difference, is align with brands that authentically mean something to you or that you use in your every day. If you're a money, if you're in for a money grab, I have to respect that. There's a lot of kids in college that still can't afford to be there that play sports. Look, everybody talks about football and basketball. It's like, look, you know, softball, soccer. I mean, they're lacrosse, there may not be any money in pro in 10 times in NIL. So it's hard for me to give advice. It's like when people say action sports, it's like, well, that's seven sports technically, I guess you guys put that under. So it's, it's hard to say broad NIL. Mm -hmm. What I would say is that if you're a top football and basketball player, I would say be very particular mm -hmm. because if you, if you actually, this is where that idea I just said is the opposite is if you do too many of those deals, you've already almost devalued yourself when you go top in the draft, I'd be saying no more than yes. You're going to make plenty of money. You know, you're going to get there. You're confident in that sense. So to me, the fewer is better. If you're someone that can have a great college career and you 
in real life are saying like, I don't know that I'll be there, but in college, I'm going to dominate. I'm in a big school. Then I would say that that is a broader discussion to have brands that you can work with through your social and digital, through your on-campus activations and that name image likeness. Yeah. That's such great advice. What is one piece of media, whether it's a book, a podcast, a magazine that you constantly turn to, to source inspiration? So mine, all mine comes from just the great people I'm around. I'm inspired daily by musicians. Machine Gun Kelly to me is just one of the most creative entrepreneur minds just every day is mine's going like this. So I like to learn from my talent. I say my talent and my, my athletes and my musicians and my team, they're what's keep me young and relevant. So I like to listen to them. I don't, the books and, you know, there's some great podcasts. Sure. But I just don't have the time. So I like to listen to the people around me. For me, it's my clients. They keep me young and informative. I I, I see style trends before any consumer does through them. Mm. Mm. That's how you know you have the right clients. That's amazing. This has been a great conversation. How can listeners keep up with you and the family? Um, we have Instagram, the family. Um, we have uh, LinkedIn and obviously, but mostly the Instagram. We definitely update all that uh, as well. Well, thank you so much. This has been a fun conversation. Thank you. It was really, I enjoyed every bit of it. Hey everyone. Thanks for listening. I hope you gained wisdom that will help you rule your life. Let's stay connected on social media. We're at Ruling Sports on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Sign up for our weekly newsletter at rulingsports.com and email me your thoughts about the show at alicia at rulingsports.com. If you liked what you heard, subscribe, rate, and review the show and join us next time.